You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. An enormous thank you to Green Building Store for supporting this episode. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. Welcome to Climate Champions, where we offer inspiration and essential knowledge about design in an era of climate emergency. With my co-host, George Morgan, we're speaking to changemakers and innovators who are transforming architecture as we know it by designing in ways that respect planetary boundaries. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture. Hattie and I met at a meeting of ACAM, the Architects Climate Action Network. At the end of this episode, we'll hear from Joe Giddings on how ACAN is helping the AJ's Retro First campaign with an initiative asking people to write to their MPs. I think that there's a problem with the perception of sustainable design as being, you know, a bit hair shirt. And, and I think it's one we've really got to tackle. We need to embrace this and work out what it could be. People aren't embracing it because they just think it's ugly and we just need more projects that show it isn't, doesn't need to be, it's just, just has to be a bit different. In this episode, we speak to Annalie Ritchies, co-founder of Mikhail Ritchies and winner, along with Kathy Hawley, of the 2019 Sterling Prize for Goldsmith Street, a passive house social housing project in Norwich. Annalie explains what her practice has learned in hindsight by taking a good hard look at Goldsmith Street, why Passive House is not enough, and the critical importance of learning from completed projects. I first met Annalie over a decade ago when she had just completed Clayfield, a passive solar scheme in Suffolk. Annalie, since then you've reconfigured your practice, completed several award-winning housing schemes, are currently on site with the refurbishment of Park Hill Estate in Sheffield, and you have a large scheme in the pipeline in York. You've also been a key player in the Velo City proposal, looking at how to provide new housing in the Cambridge-Oxford corridor. We're delighted to have you as our guest today. Mikhail Ritchie's is evolving from a design-led practice to one that is engaging seriously with sustainability. Could you talk about your journey towards putting sustainability at the heart of your design process? Were there any key light bulb moments? I think one of the main light bulb moments was when Bureau Happold conducted a really in-depth post-occupancy analysis of Clayfield, which they funded. And we found out a lot from that, particularly that if you design with the sun in mind, then you reap benefits. So for social housing, if you can just consider that one factor, basically the environment we live in and design for that, you can seriously impact fuel poverty. So for social housing, when it came to Norwich, it felt like a kind of no-brainer to try and harness free winter sun to benefit people. Um, yeah, we learned lots of things from that post analysis. We learned vital things about human behaviour, that whilst as architects we can take on so much we can responsibility for trying to make things sustainable. We cannot really affect human behaviour. People choose to do things. We can't affect that. So it's really working out where we have the most impact. And certainly heat loss and fabric are the things that we can 
have the most impact in terms of fuel savings. If people want to water their garden a hundred times or have a hot tub or, you know, we, we can't alter that. And we just got to accept that, that people either buy into the principles or they don't. Well, it's music to my ears that you should say this about post-occupancy evaluation, because I've been writing about this for years and it is now slowly gaining traction. I've just spent most of lockdown working on a book about precisely this topic with Judith Kempion and Sophie Pelsmakers. It's called Energy People Buildings, and it's due out in March. What were your main takeaways from the Clayfield post-occupancy work? It was a very in-depth post-occupancy analysis. It was a year of recording every single house. Um, not just in terms of energy use, you know, heating, electricity, water, but they also um, had sensors on every window measuring, um, <laughs> they measured the sun, the rain, the temperatures, on the, yeah, and let's, let's remember this was before really the computer modelling that allowed us to predict those things became mainstream, so now we've got we, we can predict the performance of buildings really well, we don't necessarily need to do that kind of analysis. And then they found, after a year of recording, they found big discrepancies in the way people use their homes and, and energy use. Um, so they then they met people and they asked them lots of questions about how they use their homes, trying to establish why people were using loads of energy and why some people weren't. And that was really interesting as well. Um, a lot of people just didn't get thermostats, you know, just fundamentally whacked it on at 24. And, and, and interestingly, looking at the... The relationship between the temperature you set a thermostat and the amount of energy you use is exponential. So, yeah, it's fascinating what we discovered from that. You also trialed some particular sustainability technologies, I guess you call them, such as centralized biomass and rainwater harvesting. How did those things pan out? They were, again, very interesting. I think the biomass whilst great in principle, particularly for a, a site in a rural location, had problems. And there was a, a gas backup boiler and it ended up working more than it should have done. And I don't know whether they've overcome those teething problems. It would be interesting to find out. The rainwater harvesting, again, was fascinating because they were monitoring the tank. So the tank was shared between six um, households because... Mm. It was cheaper to put in a big tank than lots of smaller tanks and provide a bigger capacity of storage for less money. But actually what they found out was that the tank was suddenly draining and they didn't understand why. And they found that because it was a shared resource that people saw their neighbour watering the garden and so they thought, oh my God, that's our shared resource and I'll water my garden. And it was just draining down. So it's really, you know, this kind of we have to anticipate that this form of human behavior, which is, you know, with limited resources, people tend to overuse them. A limited share resources. I mean, it's, I think it's called the tragedy of the commons, isn't it? So, mm -hmm. so as, a, as a medium-sized practice, how do you keep up with rapidly changing technologies and approaches, like what things are worth doing and what, what aren't? It's difficult, isn't it? Because the, the issues that we're tackling are so vast and complex but they also change so regularly because you know even in the in the space of Goldsmith Street that the focus on on biodiversity has changed massively and also you know there, there, there are gas boilers in Goldsmith Street because 
they were the most sustainable energy source at that time. And now the grid's decarbonized. They're not. And unless we learn from what we do, we don't stand a hope of making positive changes. So I, taking a long, hard look at completed projects is really important. You're going to find out stuff you did wrong. So that's so it's it's quite hard to do that. But also, you, you know, we're not going to learn unless we actually work out what we did well and what we did badly. So for Goldsmith Street, we've done analysis on that to try and work out how we could have done it better. Is there actual monitoring going on at Goldsmith Street? There is a limited amount of monitoring because it's social housing. The council don't feel it's appropriate to make people feel they're being watched. And, and I completely get that. There will be monitoring and people who are using more electricity than they probably want are being offered a, a, an opportunity to be able to find out how to use their homes more efficiently. But what we've done now we have a passive house model is we've actually taken that existing model and we've we've changed it to try and work out if we could have improved the performance through design. Because fundamentally, you know, making passive house affordable for local authorities is, is something we're really keen on doing. So if we can make it cheaper and easier to achieve, then more people will take it up. Do you think you can bring that number down? It wasn't it about eight to 10 percent over what you think a conventional project is that right in terms of cost i mean i think we wanted to find the effects on um solar orientation and passive house because uh, i think a lot of people have been designing passive house schemes and effectively just improving the fabric to make them comply and which obviously costs money that's really interesting you know you can make probably almost any scheme passive house but it just costs more and more money so what we've been trying to do is kind of go from the other direction is what's the what's the cheapest passive house you know how, how can we how can we design it in a way is is overshadowing important is form factor important what's the most efficient form what's the most efficient orientation and so we've used our passive house existing model to turn it around to extend it to to try and work out how we could have done it more efficiently before we move on other light bulb moments along the way that you would point to, like all the work that you did with your hands and, you know, understanding how things are put together, model making, all that, how does that feed into your understanding of detailing to avoid thermal bridging and all the things you have to now take into account? Yeah, so the experience of having a building and, you know, trying to build my own details has had a kind of profound effect really on the way that I approach detailing. I love detailing. It's my favourite bit of a project. But simplicity is really important. And I think when you're dealing a lot with affordable housing, social housing, there's so much cost in detailing. So if you can really make it as simple and easy to build as possible, then you're saving a lot of money that you can spend on other things. So, yeah. I remember visiting Goldsmith Street just as it was completing with your associate, James Turner. And he explained that the practice really approached the project as housing designers rather than through a passive house lens. Can you talk us through some of the challenges of working with passive house? And what's your advice to a practice that is cutting its teeth on passive house for the first time? So we didn't design Goldsmith Street as a passive house scheme. It was a passive solar scheme. So after we got the postdoc analysis from Clayfield, we tried to do a passive solar scheme at higher density 
because it was social housing, because pure property was so important. And at some point, we lost the project for a few years. We, we never thought it was going to come back, actually, um, during the credit crunch. But when it came back, the client said, can we make this passive house? And I have to say, our initial response was uh, slight <laughs> reticence because I think we had an impression of it, a, a kind of aesthetic idea that it was just going to be really boring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I tried to work out why we were a bit like, oh, no, not passive house. And they had decided that was they really wanted to do that because there's a housing association based in East Anglia called Pasto Housing um, that had done a number of passive houses alongside building regs compliant homes. And they'd interviewed the residents and found that they were happier, healthier, chronic health problems had improved, um, but also because they monitored them over quite a long time, they'd found that they hadn't left. They'd been able to pay their bills and stay. They hadn't been evicted. They hadn't gone through, had to go through all those processes. And we have to acknowledge that a lot of people out there are struggling to pay fuel, bills and food. And it's food that they end up foregoing. And we learned a lot along the way, which we'd be happy to share. Just things like, you know, one saw pipes, good, uh, helps it's all a model you see door thresholds we had big sliding doors onto the garden you know the typical thing that you but actually we've had to change them into windows and have one door at the back because thresholds are a big issue I mean there's lots of lots of things you end up learning you have to let go of the things you think are aesthetically important to make a, a modern home in in the journey I I listened to you're in David's talk on the Architecture Foundation's 100 Days Studio about Goldsmith Street. Really fascinating. I highly recommend it. One of the listeners asked if you would do a manual to explain all the things you've learned. It seems like such a good idea. How do we get this knowledge out there so people can just do it? Uh, that's why I, we're doing all this analysis on Goldsmith Street, because what I was trying to say in that talk was, as architects, we need to embrace that. And, and I think there's a real problem with people thinking that it's just all a bit ugly. Losing that big kind of dream of sliding open your doors is gone if you're looking at, I mean, not necessarily, it all depends on other factors, but, but certainly what we found in the way that we've modeled Goldsmith Street was solar orientation is incredibly important, not so much for winter solar gain, although it helps, but in terms of overheating, we really need to be avoiding east and west windows. And, and we've got some graphs we're happy to share that show Goldsmith Street rotated 360 degrees and the, the impact of overheating is phenomenal. I think we're now trying to orientate everything as south as much as possible or be mindful of window sizes to the east and west because of overheating, not because of heat loss. So I recall your colleague James saying, and this was a year and a half ago at least, that no one in the practice had actually undertaken PHPP training that you were working with, I think it's Warm Associates. Is that still the case? Do you prefer to outsource that expertise? Or are you considering training up some people or hiring that in, having that in-house? It's something we debated a lot and actually there are some people who have had basic training now so that they can have a very kind of initial 
early master plan stage assessment of a scheme. I think the conclusion we've reached is we quite like working with WARM and that we do different things and at the moment we're not planning on getting anyone qualified because they're really good at it and maybe it frees us up a bit to think slightly differently because let's face it Passive House is a programme that requires you to input information and then test it. It's an iterative process. And I know that other people are developing programmes. So we're working with Expedition, you have a programme that, that does a kind of analysis from the very beginning of it. But the, the actual Passive House programme itself is quite labour intensive. What do you think, George? You've done the training. I think it depends on on what the sort of scale of the practice is, possibly, and 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 what your your focus is that you're you're looking to do. So I thought it would be valuable to be able to do that in house as a small practice. I mean, I think really passive house is massively important, and I believe every single new home built needs to be passive house compliant. But we need to think about other things. You know, the biodiversity is now a massive. Thing we need to consider and water use and energy and and passive house is a part of it and I don't think we should lose sight of all those other issues and just focus on passive house. There's a level of architects getting kind of a bit more climate literate and, and a bit more at least understanding the principles of, of passive house. I don't think it's necessary that they all go on the course to be certified designers but yeah getting more like you say kind of understanding the the impact of orientation and form factor and the kind of the main things and also that there are constraints that you'll you'll need to be dealing with another kind of big issue at the moment is embodied energy so yeah goldsmith street was designed about over 10 years ago and so i guess there was a little bit less emphasis on embodied carbon then um, but even so, David has said on the, on the Architecture Foundation 100 Days Studio presentation that, that Hattie was referring to, um, that you've had it modelled and it works out as about 300 kilos per metre squared, which is pretty much on target for Reba's 2030 um, target for embodied carbon. It's a timber frame scheme with brick outer leaf. And so I guess a lot of the carbon that is there will be from the brick. Yes, it's got cellulose insulation as well. and. You know, we were we were mindful of embodied carbon, so we were going for low carbon construction. It'd be great if someone made a brick that wasn't, you know, that was because let's face it, clay is a natural material, but someone just needs to fire it sustainably, and then it's just going to be amazing. But when we did um, Clayfield, that was a project where we were completely mindful of embedded carbon in the construction and used lime hemp and. It was a very difficult process on site. I think we it was we we were quite stressed by the process. It was one of the first projects in the UK that had that. It was difficult site. The guys had only had a half day training course. They were concrete sprayers and they were spraying lime hemp. But I think that we we loved that product. The houses felt really wonderful, acoustically warm and. There's, there's just a good feeling in those homes. It's really hard to describe. They weren't reverberant like you get plasterboard. And so I'm really delighted that people have started to find a way to make pre-made walls and out of lime hemp. And all the problems we encompass there, with, which was in terms of drying times and the kind of sheer messiness of doing it on site, have actually been, they're being sorted out. And this is 
I think we're going to see this product coming back and we'd certainly, you know, love to use it again. Because it's, it's an interesting thing of, of how much we need to change what materials we specify and how much the materials themselves need to change. Like you were saying, with, with bricks being fired in a more sustainable way. Yeah, it's a kind of interesting question of who needs to, who needs to move. Everybody needs to move, I think, <laughs> is the answer. Wherever you are on your Passive House journey, Green Building Store can support you in the design and construction of Passive House buildings. We offer triple glazed windows and doors, MVHR heat recovery ventilation, specialist insulation and air tightness products, as well as consultancy. Visit greenbuildingstore.co.uk to discover our vast library of free resources and find out how we can help your project. Let's talk about retrofit for a minute. Can you tell us a little bit about Park Hill? Yes, I'd love to. I'm thrilled we're working on that project, um, having been a student at Sheffield. and I, I love Park Hill. <laughs> I don't know whether that's because I've had that instilled in me. It's, I mean, obviously it's a, a brutalist structure with an exposed concrete frame and it's tricky to work with. Um, it's got very low floor to ceilings, so there's only so much insulation you can actually put in there as well. You know, our main ethos there has been to keep as much as possible. If we if it works and we can upgrade it to work, then we're trying to keep it. So we're trying to keep party walls, we're trying to keep the external brickwork. And in terms of insulating, we're just doing the best we can. I mean, it's going to be better than current building regs. It would never be able to be a passive house scheme because of that enormous coal bridge. But we're working a lot with Green Gauge, who've done a lot of kind of modelling of the, the junctions. Obviously, the concrete frame comes into the building and looking at those moments and trying to apply insulation where they're going to be most effective. And can you tell us about the project you're working on in, in York? Yes, it's a really exciting programme across potentially nine sites in York and maybe more, um, which is for zero carbon homes. And of varying scales, and the sites are all very different, but the client, York City Council, is very ambitious. Passive house is a minimum, obviously, um, but there's all sorts of other things. You know, the zero carbon is something we hadn't done before. It requires a lot of PV, so we've had to kind of consider how we accommodate all that. And we're also looking alongside it at carbon and construction. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of landscape and biodiversity angle of that project that was one piece at Goldness Street not so much the master plan but those back gardens that worried me a little bit you know are they really going to work as shared space and it'd be very interesting to know especially during lockdown and all that beautiful weather we had you know how how it's panning out but you've incorporated a lot of those ideas also in in your the this early schemes I've seen for York Yes. I mean, that was a big risk. That was the bit of the project I was most nervous about was those ginnels or alleyways, whatever they are, and how they'd be used and whether they'd be annoying people. Actually, we were really delighted to find out how well they worked. Um, and I think we'd had conversations with the client, you know, Norwich Council, and said, what if they don't work? And they were like, well, it's OK, we'll just make them into, you know, they, they were the roots of the bin stores, they were where the guest meets are, they'll just be service alleys, you know, they're fine. But they've been really used and 
everyone's loved them and families have met, children have met. We are, we are proposing them on other schemes. As zero carbon schemes, do you think passive house is the, is the only way to actually achieve zero carbon? Or, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think it probably is. I mean, it's, it's got to be a minimum in terms of the performance of fabric to achieve zero carbon. I guess if you had a carbon neutral fuel source, it wouldn't matter so much, but we don't have enough energy to go around for everyone to be taking the attitude that they're paying for low carbon electricity so they can just, well, they're just literally, we cannot make that much as much electricity as we need people to have that attitude so I I would say yes it's a minimum. More and more people are saying that it's impossible to tackle the climate emergency at the scale of individual projects and that we really have to work strategically at the urban scale to make a difference. Maria Smith told us in our first episode that one of the reasons she's joined Bureau Happold is to work more strategically at, at a municipal scale and larger now, you've been working at the regional scale in the Velo City project. Can you tell us how that project came about and what you're proposing? Yes, that project came about, it was a competition that was launched by the National Infrastructure Commission for ideas about where to put new homes on the Oxford to Cambridge corridor alongside high speed rail link, but also a new road. And that is a very congested part of the country already and the new road's just going to fill up and we we wanted to unpick it in a way that meant that people could live and work and travel without increased congestion. We're going to have a different type of infrastructure, it's going to be cycling, walking alongside high-speed rail. And when we looked closely around the proposed new stations, I mean, it was just villages. And so, you know, obviously someone's going to do do a new town, there's going to be urban extensions, but villages are untouched and somehow preserved in aspic, but very, very close to existing rail links. So it's slightly controversial idea of why don't we make villages work again, put back people. um, So this is not a Mikhail Ritchie's project, am I correct? This is a... Can you explain the genesis of this and the cycling angle, I believe? So I met the talented team of ladies on on um, Padel, which is a 300-mile and three-day bike ride that's alternative to Mipimbolia, a low-testosterone way to cycle and, and meet people. And actually, I think there's a lot of chat that goes on. So it's really for a property industry professionals to meet, cycle around, so, so when this competition came up, I, I just thought it would be ideal to get together a group of people from that ride to kind of look at cycling. So did you cycle around the place? To... Uh, of course we did, yeah. Because <laughs> one thing I thought was, was interesting about these um, City ideas was that as, as architects, we spend a lot of time and energy thinking about energy in use and embodied energy uh, in buildings. But if you're driving to them, the energy from the transport can be more than all of that. So it's, it's pointless doing a really super eco scheme where you have to drive to it. That, that's what Velocity was about. It was like a holistic joined up view. So we were, you know, architects, planners, engineers, all working together on this idea to make sustainable places. But, you know, I look at places like Paris, who I, I lived in Paris. No one would have dared cycle around Paris when I lived there, which is 30 years ago now. 
but they've changed it into a cycling city and they've given cyclists the right of way. So now you can set off across around Bastille, the roundabout, and people stop for you as a cyclist. They've done it. You know, look at places where they've achieved it. Another interesting thing about these fellow city proposals is the emphasis on density in villages. A bit like sort of Gordon Cullen townscape ideas of fighting against dispersing everything and actually for what's a bit more like a traditional settlement pattern and then making space for more genuinely natural spaces elsewhere. So, yeah, how does how does that go down? You've tapped into my <laughs> my biggest rant, actually. <laughs> I've, I've got a thing about density as a metric because it's what's used. People fixate on density without really understanding what it is. So building better, building beautiful provision actually have coined gentle density, which means higher than the 25 dwellings per hectare that we end up with if we apply the overlooking rules and highways design that we're forced to adopt. We cannot keep building at those densities and we need to be building differently. But if you propose something different, people get very worried about it. If you look at traditional village settlements, they were denser and they were walkable. So we need to really somehow get rid of this overlooking distance and the assumption that highway carriages have to be 5.5 metre wide to allow cars to go as quickly as possible and overtake a bin lorry. We need to be freeing up that space that we give over to allowing this to give to other things like biodiversity, higher densities, play. It's really not complicated. I strongly agree, particularly yeah, about overlooking as well. It's like if you're worried, just shut the curtains. Can I tell you where that distance comes from? I found this out recently. So, so I mean, a lot of architects are kind of used to working in urban areas, but outside urban areas, this 21 or 22 metre distance is very important. Even you say, why, why, why that distance? They're like, well, it's set in stone. And I've tried to find out where it comes from. I've asked planning offices and, or, and, and no one really knows. But I've recently found out that it was set in 1902 by Parker and Unwin. So they, they decided that they, they needed a kind of metric where they would, you know, really was about protecting the modesty of women. And so they went into a field <laughs> in their shirts and they walked apart until they could no longer see each other's nipples through the shirt. <laughs> and they measured it and it's 70 foot. Wow. That is incredible. Had they not heard of curtains? (laughs) And, but, but, you know, the idea that we're following a number that no one even knows where it's come from and it's set in stone as law is the kind of thing that just drives me insane, actually. When it becomes a really specific rule, it's kind of, if there's a number for something, that counts more firmly than more subjective issues. (laughs) But, you know, really, we need to be building denser. We can't keep spreading this low density stuff all over the country making everyone use their cars. It's an incremental thing. You need to provide a way for people to change their behavior. And then the more people that use it, the more people will consider using it themselves and and it will change. So unless we provide a framework for people to do something differently, things aren't gonna change. Well, as you say, it's happened in Paris. I saw that you've set out a timeline for Velo City roughly two years to establish an initial framework and then 20 years, practically a generation, to shift people away from car dependency. Can we really afford to wait that long? Well, 
unless we get some kind of top-down legislation, it's difficult, yes. How do you make change? I think that's something we're struggling. I mean, with, with Goldsmith Street, I was hoping that just demonstrating it was possible to build, you know, affordable passive housing would have a change. And I've heard that it has actually had a change, that people's clients have said, oh, maybe we could look at passive house. So I wanted to ask you a completely different question while we're still on the subject of, I know you've been doing lots of cycling. On your website, you mentioned that you spent several months as a circus performer. Can you still do static trapeze? Have you... <laughs> I have a static trapeze, but I don't have space for it at the moment. I don't know is the answer. I haven't done it for a long time. I still have my trapeze. Um, I've just found out this morning I've got planning to build a house where I live. Um, and I'm going to put it up there. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. So let's talk about your practice for a moment. How many are you? currently and how have you weathered the pandemic we're 24 and i think we've weathered it well actually we were early adopters in in home working and and everyone's embraced it and we've had to find ways around things but they seem to be working and we're continuing with projects we park hill still on site as well so finding ways to do that remotely. For me, it's been a game changer, really, because I live in Whitstable. I don't live in London, and I don't need to commute so much. So there are positives, although, <laughs> as you mentioned, the homeschooling, <laughs> an eight-year-old and trying to work hasn't been massive success. So I think you've grown in the last 18 months or so. How has the Sterling win impacted the practice and your workload? It's not it, interestingly it doesn't seem to have made any difference to people approaching us for work maybe they're more maybe they're scared but we you know we, we've got great projects we're we're working on so we're we're fine at the moment i don't know what's around the corner though annalee i'd like to come back to the perceived dichotomy between sustainability and beautiful architecture how can we overcome the perception that sustainable design is ugly? I, I think that there's a problem with the perception of sustainable design as being, you know, a bit hair shirt. And and I think it's one we've really got to tackle because if you think about, you know, we're all steeped in modernism, but you think about that really came out of technological advances in certain materials. And we need to embrace this and work out what it could be. <laughs> It can seem like there's a bit of a sort of two cultures thing of people who are interested in sustainable design, but it's really more the emphasis on the sustainability than architecture or, or culture or beauty necessarily. And then there's a sort of design-led practice world, which typically doesn't deal with sustainable issues so, so strongly. So, you know, we thought it would be really interesting to speak to you for, as somebody from a, a design-led practice that's moved into the world of, of taking sustainability seriously as well to kind of yeah, break down some of the barriers between the two camps. I mean, I think that this is the fundamental issue, really, which is why people aren't embracing it, because we are taught to think that something is design-based and something isn't. And a lot of the things that we see in design are based on a time when we were able to just put 
tons of glass there and we weren't really worried. You're right. I think people aren't embracing it because they just think it's ugly on some level. And we just need more projects that show it isn't doesn't need to be. It's just just has to be a bit different. That's a really good place to end, Analia. And I just thank you very much for sharing all these thoughts with us. Thank you. <laughs> more projects that show everyone what's possible, clients and fellow architects as well. <laughs>so now we're joined by Joe Giddings, co-founding member and campaigns coordinator of ACAM, the Architects Climate Action Network. So, Joe, listeners are likely to have seen the AJ's Retro First campaign, promoting low-carbon retrofit rather than demolition as the preferred option, and deconstructing buildings along circular economy lines so that parts can be reused where retrofit isn't suitable. So, how does this relate to the work of ACAM? So, one of the pillars of ACAM's work is decarbonising construction. And the construction industry directly causes around 10% of the UK's total carbon emissions through its consumption of materials and resources. So one of the simplest ways that this material consumption can be reduced is just by reusing and adapting the existing building on site rather than demolishing it. As the AJ's Retro First campaign calls for the government to introduce policy that prioritises this, that is a cause that is central to ACAM's aims. And what are the barriers to this happening more? VAT, regulation? Yeah, one of the biggest barriers is VAT because it's charged at 20% on retrofit, whereas new build is exempt. This just provides a huge financial incentive to demolishing and rebuilding. And this coupled with the ease at which it's possible to gain planning permission to demolish often it isn't even needed. That means that the new build is just the default option. What is ACAN calling for people to do? We are asking people to write to their MP using a template letter that we have written to make it really easy. The letter asks your MP to raise three questions with government ministers in three departments, the Treasury for VAT, MHCLG for planning policy, and the Cabinet Office for procurement. And we're simply asking people to copy the letter and send it via email to their local MP. It will only take five minutes and it could have a big impact. Okay, fantastic. So where can people find out more? You can find out more on the ACAM blog, which is at architectscan.org forward slash blog, or by navigating to the Architects Journal's Retro First page. I would like to express an enormous thank you to Green Building Store for supporting this episode of Climate Champions. Our next guest will be Sophie Pelsmakers, author of the Environmental Design Pocketbook and Professor of Architecture in Finland. Sophie talks about her homecoming to sustainability as a Belgian architecture student in London the urgent need for architecture curriculum reform to address climate emergency and the many myths that plague sustainable design. You can find out more about both Annalie Ritchie's and ACAN on the Climate Champions webpage at architectsjournal.co.uk, where you can also send comments and subscribe. Thanks for listening.